morning. Okay, let's see if we make this work today. Yeah, sort of. For those of you who don't know, um, oh, and by the way, I don't have a watch today, so I've brought my cell phone up here because it shows the time. If it starts ringing, um, I'll ignore it. I have caller ID, unless like it's Bush who needs some advice or something. <laughs> and I see our state rep, Debbie Riddle, down there. I'd just give the phone to her and she could fix it, especially. Um, the, uh, uh, if you are new to our class or you're visiting, this is a class on biblical literacy. We've got lessons in the back that will be handed out if you want to raise your hand. We have been starting with Genesis. We've worked all the way up to Daniel, which means after this we've got 12 minor prophets to go. Then we're going to look at the Apocrypha. Then we're going to look at the New Testament. In the process of looking at the New Testament, we'll also ask some questions that we've already asked about the Old Testament. But that is, who decided which books are in there? Where did these books come from? Uh, are these books valid or not? I think we're going to kick up to one of the early lessons, a discussion about the New Testament Apocrypha, which uh, if you've read the Da Vinci Code or Time Magazine's articles or, or uh, uh, if you've been reading uh, your Gnostic literature, uh, maybe uh, fresh in your minds, and I think would be useful to spend some time on as a class, so we'll probably do that at that point. Daniel, I've divided up into two weeks. We're going to deal with Daniel part one this week, and we'll do part two next week. It works well that way. The, uh, um, in about two weeks, I believe, if I don't have my dates right, it's either two or three weeks, we'll have Joel Chernov back, who will sing some songs out of the Minor Prophets, uh, if you were here for his time before. So I don't want you to miss that. Daniel is an interesting book. I consider it a twofer uh, for you in a number of different ways. Uh, Daniel is a twofer in the sense that it's written in two languages. If you were reading Daniel and you were a Hebrew slash Aramaic scholar, you would read starting in Hebrew and then Daniel in the second chapter makes a bump and you start reading in Aramaic. And it reads through in Aramaic till the end where it jumps back to Hebrew. And there have been a lot of questions that scholars have had over the years as to why this was true. Some scholars believe that this is an indication that Daniel was actually multiple books that have been put together. Other scholars believe that this is an indication that Daniel was originally in one language or the other and translated back and forth. Uh, what seems to make the most sense is if you go back and read even the Code of Hammurabi, but you go back and read other literature from that time in that culture, it was a frequent practice to put it in two different languages at different points as a way of bringing emphasis. When in the 40s the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and being uncovered and being translated, there were eight Dead Sea Scrolls that dealt with the book of Daniel, which means, by the way, comparatively, it was a popular book in that community. That community around the Dead Sea has been called the community at Qumran, and it was settled by some kind of zealot Jews who were off on their, doing their own thing because they thought Judaism in general was corrupt. And so these Jews in their own little community kept their own little library. And out of this library are eight Daniel manuscripts that date from about 150 B.C. Uh, up through the time of Christ. All of those manuscripts show that Daniel was in two languages for them as well. Uh, four of those manuscripts have the three different parts, Hebrew, Aramaic, and then Hebrew, and they're all consistent, which indicates to me that this was probably written in two different languages. 
doesn't make that much difference to us, except next week when we talk about when Daniel was written. Uh, uh, I'll mention this a little bit more. When Daniel was written is a significant question that has bothered scholars for a long time, namely because Daniel contains prophecies that are so precise historically that starting in the 300s with some um, uh, a heretic, uh, uh, who pagan who was writing against Christianity, uh, uh, there have been people who have said, there is no way the book of Daniel was written before about 175 B.C. Because nobody could have prophesied so clearly historical events that are so plain that even a pagan reading it and comparing it to history has to say that that's identical. We'll deal with those prophecies next week. Daniel's also a twofer in the sense that not only was it in two languages, but it's got two different types of writing in it. The first six chapters of Daniel are a historical narrative of sorts. Here's what happened historically. The last half of Daniel are prophecies, and that's the half we'll look at next week. A third way that the book of Daniel is a twofer. Uh, if you were a Jew reading your Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible at this point in history, and for the last thousand, two thousand years perhaps, has put... Uh, uh, the book of Daniel, not in the book of prophets, but in a third section called the other writings. In the Christian Bible, the book of Daniel has always been considered one of the book of the prophets. And so it's included in the prophets in, in our Christian Bible and our English translation today. Again, that's more relevant on when was the date written. So stick that in your memory bank for next week. We'll cover it again later. We start with chapter 1. I entitled chapter 1, Working for a Pagan. How many of you work for pagans? And anybody that works for me, Philip, put your hand down. <laughs> anybody out there work for pagans? Work for people who don't know the Lord? Wouldn't know the Lord if he hit them on the head with a turnip. Well, that was the position that we find in chapter 1 of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is our pagan. Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. made one of his discipline trips to Jerusalem where Jerusalem was in rebellion. This is not the final 586 destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple and take most everybody into captivity. This is one of the earlier, okay, y'all aren't obeying. I'm taking a bunch of the leaders and the nobility into captivity. And it happened in 605 B.C. And among the people who went into captivity were Daniel and three other of his friends. Daniel was a, of a noble family and he was carted off to Babylon. And uh, if we had cameras and were over in Iraq today, which is Babylon, we might... Uh, uh, this is a photograph that's been taken. And this is uh, uh, actually been taken by some American military over there. Um, this is the temple, uh, not temple, uh, the palace of Saddam Hussein. He does not live there anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, he managed to build it right by the ruins of old Babylon. This, these ruins we see here are Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, and I've blown them up. Um, uh, obviously, they're in pretty good shape. That's because uh, uh, um, Saddam uh, has been rebuilding uh, Babylon, while he uh, had the ability. Um, he's got the time now, he just doesn't have the ability. Uh, anyway, um, so this is, this is a picture of some of the rebuilt parts. 
This was actually has been rebuilt with the newer bricks, but this was the throne room for Nebuchadnezzar, the throne, the outside throne, the courtyard, if we, if that's an American soldier, if you turn, the guy taking this picture turns around and this is the rest of the courtyard and the gate that goes to the outside. Nebuchadnezzar is the king and he reigns here. This is his home. And as his home, King Nebuchadnezzar um, says, I want to train some of these young, bright nobles that we've gathered from the hinterlands and train them to come into my service. We're going to put them on a three-year college plan. And this is complete with meals. This is a meal plan. They get food and drink from the king's table. Now, that's not bad. Because while for us, dorm food was pretty um, uh, poor, uh, you know, if you're going to a three-year college and you're getting the king's food, you got to figure Nebuchadnezzar had the best of the food and the best of the drink. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, I want these boys to be trained. I want them to be trained uh, uh, with my food and my drink. Take three years and do it. So the boys are gathered together. The boys are told, you're going to eat the king's food. You're going to drink the king's drink. And over the next three years, we're going to teach you what you need to know to serve the king. Um, This is Michelangelo's portrait of Daniel. And uh, uh, it's got the book underneath it. But Daniel, as a young boy, if we were in the Sistine Chapel, we'd see that. Daniel and three of his friends were chosen to be part of the training program. Each were given a Persian name or a Babylonian name. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. And his three friends were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's right. Or as uh, one of my kids said, Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. Um, As we told that story one night before they went to sleep. Well, there was a 10-day probation diet. I've got a before and after photo here. The, uh, uh, what happened is the king says, you're going to eat my food, but Daniel says, your food's not kosher and, uh, tells the, the, the mentor, uh, I'm not eating that food. I just want to eat vegetables. I'm not going to eat uh, meat that's, that's not kosherly slain the way God told us to, to slay our, our, our meat. And I'm not going to be drinking the king's wine. It's not kosher. All I'll ask for is vegetables and water. And, uh, the mentor said, I'll let you try it for 10 days, but if after 10 days you're looking poor, then you got to eat the king's diet or die. Uh, uh, Daniel and his friends ate the Lord's diet instead of the king's diet, and I think the picture shows pretty clear after 10 days they were looking good. Um, this, uh, this predates the South Beach diet by like 2,500 years. And uh, uh, you eat vegetables and drink water, and you too, and it may take longer than 10 days. Um, and as a matter of fact, those aren't the same guys, but they were the only pictures I could find. Lewis wouldn't let me use his. The, um, after a three-year time period, the people go to, or the, 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 the men, the trainees, the kids, they go to the pagan king. Nebuchadnezzar interviews them. Nebuchadnezzar looks at them. And Nebuchadnezzar realizes that Daniel and his friends were ten times better than any of the others. And God honored their obedience. And God honored their choices in life. And they got the jobs. Not bad, huh? Okay. Y'all can clap. That's the end of chapter one. Not me. You clap for the text, okay? Chapter one is over. That's one television show. Now the second vignette. Daniel the sequel. Working for a pagan, part two. It does not always get as good as part one. Who has ever had their boss ask them to do something impossible? 
I, uh, uh, w one of the companies that I do legal work for uh, had me come meet uh, with uh, a number of their uh, executives. And uh, it's a, um, uh, an interesting company. It's a, a candy company, which uh, uh, they make M&Ms. Um, in fact, Becky said when negotiating the deal, I should forget pay and just try and get M&Ms for life. <laughs> Uh, I suggested that. They said they couldn't afford me. Um, the, uh, no. Um, but uh, uh, one of the interesting things, the M&Ms are owned by the Mars company. And as I've been talking to some of these people, one of the things I found intriguing is the way the Mars family runs the Mars company historically was they would say, I want ABC, and people were expected to do it. And I've heard recurrent stories of people saying, I, don't, I can't do ABC. But I had to, so I figured out how. And they got results this way. Um, it's not an uncommon area of leadership for people to, who are bosses to say to their workers, I want you to get this result, period. And so maybe you've been there before. Maybe your bosses have asked you to do something impossible. Nebuchadnezzar asked the impossible. Nebuchadnezzar said, I've been having bad dreams. This same recurrent dream. Call all the wise men together. I want them to come and do two things. Number one, tell me the dream. And number two, interpret the dream. And we're not just doing this interpret the dream stuff. Because this, this is a real important dream. It's really bothering me. And I figure you're making it up. So I want credibility behind the interpretation and the way I, the king, demand credibility is I demand you tell me the dream first. And all the wise men need to come do it. And if the wise men can't find someone who'll do it, I want all the wise men put to death because they're fakes, fraud, phonies, and charlatans. And we'll start all over again clean. Well, that's a tall order. And all the wise men did not know how to do it. And none of them even wanted to go in and try to guess how to do it. So the issue came forth from the king. All of my wise men are fade frogs, fade, fakes, frauds, and phonies. Let's kill them all. And as the men were going out to carry out King Nebuchadnezzar's orders, they came to Daniel, and Daniel said, uh, time out. Now, what's the story here? The guy says, oh, king's been having bad dreams. Y'all are all going to get killed because, A, no one can tell the king what he dreamed, and, B, no one can then interpret it. Daniel said, um... Can you hang off on this killing thing? Give me a moment to work on this, please. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Daniel goes to the Lord, tells his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to pray for him overnight because he desperately needs God's help. And so does Daniel come to the rescue? Well, no, but God does. God comes to the rescue and tells Daniel what the dream is and the interpretation. Daniel goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and says, here's your dream, here's the interpretation. The dream itself, by the way, is important, but in a prophetic sense. So it'll be dealt with a little bit next week when we look at how Daniel was prophetic. Daniel, in the dream, not only told the dream, but explained how the dream would reveal the unfolding of history for those people over the next several hundred years up through the Roman Empire and the conquering of Rome. And so um, Daniel doesn't come to the rescue himself. Really, God comes to the rescue and it causes Nebuchadnezzar to... Uh, um, by the way, that's the statue he dreamed. Uh, Rembrandt managed to etch it before Rembrandt passed away. 
Um, it causes uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar to bow down and worship God Most High, which is pretty profound. Not to the exclusion of Nebuchadnezzar's other pantheon of gods, but uh, he recognizes the God of Daniel as the Most High of all of the gods. Um, so with that, we have Working for a Pagan Part 2. Now, Part 3, how to get a promotion when working for a pagan. This can be very challenging, um, and I do not necessarily recommend it the way we see in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar decided it was time to build a 90-foot statue. Now, 90 foot is roughly nine stories tall, if you figure 10 feet to a story. That's my resident builder who's building my house. Isn't that about 10 feet to a story? So 90 stories, a vision about a nine-story building. And it's in the plains of Dura that this is erected. And it's a big statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, along with this statue, by the way, that's not the real statue, okay? This is like a, an imitation statue. But uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar says, let's build a statue. And with this statue, everyone is ordered to do something. Here it is. Whenever you hear music, it can be a horn, it can be a drum, it can be a, a stringed instrument, but you hear music, everybody is required to bow down and worship my statue. And failure to do so will result in you being not only killed, but cast into a furnace, a fiery furnace. That means one that's been lit, as opposed to one that's a has-been. Okay? Now, the king would view your failure to fall down and worship him as treason. But if you're a Jew, like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you are familiar with, hopefully, the fact that God laid out ten commandments and one of them was, yeah, you're not supposed to fall down and worship other things, right? You're not supposed to have graven images. You're not supposed to worship anyone but the Lord God. Now, understand, these guys, let's get it up here. These guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are, um, they're, they're bureaucrats, they're power brokers, they, they, they work in the government. Nebuchadnezzar is not just their king, he's also their boss. And um, if you are sitting there, if, if I could put this into personal terms, I would equate it to something like this. You work for someone who tells you to do something that you know is a sin before God. You work for someone who tells you to do something that you know is a sin before God. And you sit there and you think, well, let's see. I need the job. And you start kind of rationalizing. Well, it's a sin, but in a sense it's not my fault because it's my boss who's making me do it. So it's his sin. Or you sit there and you start thinking, well, maybe I can pretend to do it, but not really do it. Like, um, you know, there's the statue and the music starts playing. 
well, I'm not going to bow down and worship the statute. I'm just going to bow down, but in my heart, I'm going to say, oh God, I'm not worshiping that statue because that would be wrong. Instead, I'm worshiping you. Or you could really trick yourself and instead of bowing down, you could fall and stumble over a rock at just the right moment. <laughs> so you start rationalizing and you start thinking of all these different ways you could live your life to please your boss or to please the world to live your life with the sin being asked for or sought and still be at peace with yourself. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. They would not bow down. And so um, the king was in a furious rage with this. And before just having them cast into the uh, fiery furnace, the king said, Come here, boys. Do you understand I'm not just your king, I am your boss, and your failure to do this will result in you being thrown into the fiery furnace? And the three fellows said, King, yeah, we understand, but we can't do it. And God is able to rescue us. Our God, whom we do worship, is able to rescue us from that furnace. Importantly, y'all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, but even if God chooses not to, we're still going to do what's right. God is able to rescue us, but even if God chooses not to, we're still doing what's right. Well, the king's furious. The king says, uh, I want you to rev the furnace up. I want the furnace uh, um, um, multiple times hotter than it normally is. And throw them in there. And don't strip them ahead of time. Throw them in with all of their clothes and their turban and all the stuff that will catch fire real quick. So in their throne. And the king, in fact, the, the guy's throwing them in because the fire's been revved up so much in the furnace. They get burned up just in the process of throwing the three boys in there. The king looks in and he sees four in the furnace. And the king says, one of them, it looks like the three guys with all their clothes, but the other one looks like... A son of God. Okay. Turn down the furnace. Guys, come on out. <laughs> and out the guys come. And they don't even smell like smoke. Their clothes are unharmed. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who started this chapter, saying, I want everybody to worship me and my statutes ends the chapter worshiping God Most High, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in fact, gives them a promotion. Not a guarantee, a tough way to get a promotion. Chapter 4, a tree dream. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This time he dreams he's a, uh, there's a tree, and the tree is the tree of Babylon. And its branches go up into the, the sky, and the branches go out far, and all of the birds nest and eat out of the branches, and, and all of the livestock and cattle and all of the people feed from the fruit that comes in from the tree and underneath the branches. And then something happens, and the tree is basically annihilated down to the trunk, but the trunk stays there. And the king wants to know what the interpretation of this dream is. Now, this king, this time, Nebuchadnezzar is willing to tell everybody what the dream is. Makes the job a little bit easier. 
But the tough part about it is a tree was symbolic of the king and everybody knew it. And nobody wants to interpret for the king a dream that says, Oh king, you're very resourceful. You cover the earth. Everyone eats from your plenty. And everyone acknowledges you as the source of life. But your, your show's coming to a weird end, baby. You're about to get chopped down. Because there are some places where the messenger is killed if he doesn't bring the right message. So it's a tough chore to tell the truth for these people. And, you know, it's just the funniest thing. All of them are, gee, King, I don't have a clue what that dream means. That's just the wildest dream. I'm not really sure. So Daniel gets the black bean, the, the, the short straw. He, he draws the, the one and he says, King, I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm not happy about this. But the bottom line is your arrogance has got the best of you and your sin has got the best of you and you are the tree, but you're going to be chopped down. And you're not going to be totally destroyed. You'll come back. That's why there's still a stump that's in the ground. But you're going to live like an animal. And you're going to be an outcast from the people. Until you repent before God. So King, would you just get it over with right now and just repent off of this dream? And we can save everybody a whole lot of trouble. The King says no. And the King goes insane. And the King suffers from a disease that causes him to act like an animal and he eats grass and he's thrown out in the, the wild and lives out in the wild until he reaches a point of repentance and comes back to God and is restored. Um, there is some interesting history, by the way, about um, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar from secular sources. I'll probably talk about that some next week because it's worth uh, uh, looking at what secular sources have said about King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, that's a William Blake painting. In the interest of time, let's move on. Have you ever seen the writing on the wall? That expression, the writing on the wall? Well, this is after uh, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the next king, Belshazzar, and he has a great big party. And at this party, he sees the writing on the wall. This is a painting by Rembrandt. Here's the scene. Belshazzar's having a huge party, has a thousand of his closest friends. They're just drinking it up, getting sloshed, having a great time, and Belshazzar says, hey, I know what we can really do for fun. I remember a bunch of goodies that were captured from this temple in Jerusalem when we overcame, ran Jerusalem in 586. Let's haul that stuff out and let's get drunk out of it. They had gold goblets. So out come the treasure from Yahweh's temple, and the people start drinking it. And a hand mysteriously appears, and a finger starts writing on the wall. Now that will make you think you've had too much to drink. <laughs> it's interesting, and as a side note, that I believe is why Jesus knelt in the sand in the Gospel of John and writes. It's the only, two of the only three times you see a handwriting in the Bible. The other time, God's hand wrote uh, for Moses the tablets. Um, not that it was a visible hand, but the, the writing was there. And Jesus, when he, Jesus writes in John, is acknowledging um, that he is the divine hand who is able to write both law and judgment. Anyway, um, um, that's for the woman who was caught in adultery and dragged before him. We'll deal with that when we get to John because it's a wonderful story. But this is where the image comes from. Um, the party's going on. This hand appears and it writes something. It writes, Mene, Mene, Tikal, uh, uh, what's the last word? Thank you. Um, Perez, Mene, Mene, Tikel, Perez. 
Um, it's interesting the way, uh, uh, what's his name, um, Rembrandt did this. I don't know if he messed up or not. I, I haven't had a chance to talk to him. But if you read Hebrew, Hebrew reads right to left. And so when I got this painting and I put it in here, I thought, man, you know, he shaped the letters perfectly. But what a bozo. He should have, if he's going to go to that much trouble, he should have gone ahead and gotten the letters right. You know, he could have, you know, that's an, that's an M, um, that's an M, that's a T, that's a V, which just can mean and, and that's kind of a, an S sound. And I thought, why, why did he do it? Look at that. That's just, that's mimetifus. <laughs> and then look at that next word. That's an N, and that's an N, and that's kind of a CH or a Q sound, and that's a P, so that's nimpiz. And then there's A, A, L, R, Z. Alriz. He actually did write it. It just took me a little bit of time. He wrote it downwards, like he was Chinese. That's mene, mene, tikal. And, he added the letter and, Perez. So, yeah, he, yeah, he, that Rembrandt, he was, you know how those Dutch people are. Um, so, the question is, what does this mean? Nobody knows what it means. Um, we're doing okay. Nobody knows what it means. So, Daniel is brought in. Daniel does not think much of King Belshazzar. Um, King Belshazzar says, hey, if you'll read this, you'll tell me what it means, I'll give you tons of goodies. Daniel says, I'm going to tell you what it means, but I don't want your goodies. I'll give you the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall is this. You've been measured in the scales and you've been found lacking and it's over. Mene, mene, your days are numbered. Tikar, Tikal and Perez. Not only have you been measured and found wanting, not only are your days numbered, but Perez, your kingdom's going to be divided. And that night was the night when he was overrun, and the Medes and the Persians, the division of the kingdom, took over, and Babylon was over. From that time forward, it was uh, the Medes and the Persians uh, who had control. Um, the writing on the wall, the result, exactly what it said. Last chapter. Uh, we deal with today, lions. You all know this story probably. Darius the Mede is now ruling or governing over this area of Babylon. This is after Belshazzar. Who remembers the OJ's song, Backstabbers? They smile in your face all the time. They want to take your place, the backstabbers. Backstabbers. You remember that? Um, this may be what they were reading when they wrote it. I doubt it. Daniel is uh, still a Lord High Muckety Muck, and uh, the, the other guys really would like to get above him on the old corporate ladder. They'd be much rather be high up to the king. So they start scrubbing him down to find out what's wrong with him to get him in trouble. The problem is Daniel is trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. He's good at what he does. So with that as an understanding... Uh, 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 the effort is made to get Daniel, and uh, the only way they can do it is making it illegal to pray. Daniel prays anyway. Uh, we know the story. Darius doesn't want Daniel thrown into the lion's den, but Daniel is thrown into the lion's den anyway, and God is able to rescue Daniel from the lion's den. Um, the, 
final note I'll put on this is as Daniel's being thrown into the lion's den, Darius, who's now made it illegal to pray, says a prayer over Daniel. May your God protect you. And God does. Um, we're going to skip that because of time. Here are your points for home. Um, we need to go with God and you won't go wrong. God can save you from anything. You do right regardless of the consequences. There's no promise of worldly success, but you do right anyway. And you can even thrive with a pagan boss. Would you pray with me? God, we ask your blessings upon us. We ask your blessings this day. You're a wonderful God who loves us uh, beyond measure. And I pray that you'll move in our hearts and draw us closer to you. In Jesus, amen.